Section 1 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy in England in the 17th Century, Volume 2, The Cambridge Platonists. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. Chapter 1. Historical Position of the Cambridge School, Philosophy and Christianity, Part 1. With the advance of the 17th century, the rational spirit broadened and took to itself larger intellectual elements. It extended beyond the sphere of the Church into the whole region of spiritual thought and philosophy. There remains to us, in this volume, the task of sketching this further stage in the intellectual and theological development of the English mind. The ideas of religious authority and the constitution of the Church were the centers round which the preceding movement revolved. What makes the Church, or, in other words, what are the essential terms of Christian communion and the conditions of natural Christian organization, were the great questions of the time to which the spirit of religious inquiry sought an answer. All other questions were subordinate, even those arising out of the Synod of Dort and the progress of Arminianism. These helped to quicken the national consciousness, but the mainsprings of its action were the stirring ecclesiastical difficulties. Two parties stood opposed, each professing a theory of the church which admitted of no compromise. Inheriting alike the medieval idea of theological and ritual uniformity, which the Reformation had failed to destroy, they interpreted this idea in diverse directions, and so stood face to face in hopeless discord. Equally exclusive, and claiming each to absorb the national life, it was inevitable that they should clash in a violent trial of strength. The intensity of the conflict was proportioned to the intensity of the division betwixt parties, sundered not only by political differences, but by rival ideals of religious government and worship, which they interpreted respectively as of divine authority. It was the merit of Hales and Chillingworth and Taylor, attached as they were personally to one side in this struggle, that they penetrated beneath the theoretical narrowness which enslaved both sides, and grasped the idea of the Church more profoundly and comprehensively. They saw the inconsistency of a formal use divinum with the essential spirit of Protestantism, imperfectly as this spirit had been developed in England or, indeed, elsewhere. According to this spirit, the true idea of the Church is moral and not ritual. It consists in certain verities of faith and worship, rather than in any formal unities of creed or order. The genuine basis of Christian communion is to be found in a common recognition of the great realities of Christian thought and life, and not in any outward adhesion to a definite ecclesiastical or theological system. All who profess the Apostles' Creed are members of the Church, and the national worship should be so ordered as to admit of all who make this profession. The purpose of these churchmen, in short, was comprehension and not exclusion. While they held that no single type of church government and worship was absolutely divine, they acknowledged, in different forms of church order, an expression more or less of the divine ideas which lie at the root of all Christian society, and which, and not any accident of external form, give to that society its essential character. In a word, the church appeared to them the more divine, the more ample the spiritual activities it embraced, and the less the circle of heresy or dissent it cut off. This breadth and toleration separated them alike from prelatists and Puritans. Whatever we may think of the position and character of these men otherwise, they were the true authors of our modern religious liberty. To the Puritans we owe much. 
they vindicated the dignity of popular rights and the independence due to the religious conscience save for the stern stand which they made in the seventeenth century many of the elements which have grown into our national greatness and given robustness to our common national life would not have had free scope but it argues a singular ignorance of the avowed aims of the presbyterian party and the notorious principles of the puritan theology to attribute to them the origin of the idea of religious liberty as a party the presbyterians expressly repudiated this idea their dogmatism was inflexible the church according to them was absolutely authoritative over religious opinion no less than religious practice it could tolerate no differences of creed the distinction of fundamental and non-fundamental articles of belief elaborately maintained by chillingworth and taylor was held to be dangerous heresy and the principle of latitude with all the essential ideas of free thought which have sprung out of it was esteemed unchristian these ideas are to be found in the writings of the liberal churchmen of the seventeenth century and nowhere else in england at that time at least nowhere else broadly and systematically expounded it is necessary to vindicate the distinction of these men because history hitherto has hardly done justice to them they have been forgotten amidst the more noisy parties of their time between whom they sought to mediate as they fell aside personally unsupported by either prelatists or puritans so their influence has passed out of notice and remained unhonored in the pages of our popular historians what they really did for the cause of religious thought has never been adequately appreciated they worked with too little combination and consistency but it is impossible in any real study of the age not to recognize the significance of their labors or to fail to see how much the higher movement of the national mind was due to them while others carried the religious and civil struggle forward to its sterner issues but before this line of ecclesiastical liberalism had expended itself there had begun a new and deeper movement of religious thought in england a movement like the former initiated and carried on by divines of the church of england but distinguished from it by certain interesting contrasts the inquiring spirit awakened by the religious contentions of the time took a bolder and broader turn as these contentions became more radical and sweeping from church politics it passed into the general sphere of religious and philosophical discussion whereas the former movement was mainly ecclesiastical aiming at a wider extension of the anglican church system this movement was mainly philosophical and had directly in view the interests of rational religion to vindicate for the church a more liberal constitution and a certain liberty of prophesying was the special problem with liberal thinkers in the first half of the seventeenth century with the progress of the century this problem had by no means disappeared on the contrary it emerged again in a distinctive political shape in the end of the century but other and higher problems had in the meantime arisen questions affecting the nature of religion itself the limits of theological dogmatism and the consequent value of orthodoxy and more than all questions touching the very essence of religious and moral principles in the face of a new spirit of speculation had come to the front it is with such questions we shall find that our next group of divines deals starting with many of the same thoughts as hales and chillingworth their liberalism takes a higher flight they aim not only nor chiefly at ecclesiastical comprehension but to find a higher organon of christian thought than any religious school had yet attempted and to vindicate the essential principles of christian philosophy both against dogmatic excesses within the church and philosophical extravagances without it the superficial contrasts betwixt the two movements are curious and in one respect highly significant 
while the former was mainly connected with oxford and drew from this university its primary and special inspiration the second is almost exclusively connected with cambridge footnote it will be remembered that even taylor although educated at cambridge was appointed very early by laud to a fellowship at oxford namely to all souls sixteen thirty six just at the time that chillingworth was engaged in his great work which appeared at the close of sixteen thirty seven and a footnote it is represented throughout by a succession of well-known cambridge divines sometimes spoken of as latitudinarians and sometimes as cambridge platonists the chief names in this illustrious succession are benjamin whichcote john smith ralph cudworth and henry moore apart from the affinities of thought which bind these men together into one of the most characteristic groups in the history of religious and philosophical thought in england they were all closely united by personal and academic associations. In this respect, they stand much more distinctively by themselves than our former group. They constitute a school of opinion in a far more real and effective sense. Another point of contrast is more noteworthy. While Hales and Chillingworth and Taylor came forth from the high church and royalist side in the great struggle of the century, and were all of them personal friends of Laud, the Cambridge divines, on the contrary, sprang from the Puritan side, they were successors of the men displaced by the Puritan authorities in 1644. They owed their position, first of all, to the triumphant Parliament, and they were secured and encouraged in it by the great protector. Moreover, with a single exception, Henry Moore, they were all educated at the famous Puritan college, Emmanuel. This serves to throw light at once on their personal concert and the common springs of thought which moved them. It is far from accidental that in tracing the course of liberal religious thought in the seventeenth century, a comparatively narrow stream running betwixt high banks of authoritative dogmatism, we should have to turn, in the progress of our research, from one side to the other, from the sacerdotalism of Laud to the orthodoxy of the Westminster Assembly. The change is only a natural one arising out of the altered position of parties and the new balance of forces affecting the national mind. The spirit of inquiry in every age springs, by way of reaction, from the prevailing dogmatism with which it comes in contact. Reason is aroused in the face of the authority that is most urgent and dominant. It is only, therefore, what we might expect when we find the Cambridge movement connected in its beginning with certain discussions betwixt Whichcote and Tuckney, who was his old tutor at Emmanuel, and afterwards associated with him in the university. But we shall be better able to understand the effect of this spirit of reaction and also the special philosophical character of the movement, by taking a glance at the religious circumstances which meet us about the middle of the century, and the new speculative influences which had begun to move the higher minds of the time. The Cambridge Platonists, like every other group of thinkers, stand closely in connection with their age, at once interpreting its greater thoughts and carrying them onwards to new developments. They can only be understood as the product of the most active intellectual elements of the generation which they so prominently represented and adorned. 1. Towards the middle of the seventeenth century, an obvious turn can be traced in the religious spirit of England. The question of the church was no longer pressing. While far from being settled, it seemed for the time indefinitely postponed under the strong rule of the military power which had risen to preeminence on the ruins of every other authority. But if ecclesiastical disputes no longer vexed the national temper in the same degree, theological polemics raged more fiercely than ever. Numerous sects had sprung up, each claiming to represent the divine mind and to expound a universal truth to a distracted people. 
These sects were obnoxious alike to both the old parties, to the Puritans even more than to the Prelatists. They are spoken of as anti-scripturists, familists, antinomians, anti-trinitarians, Arians, Anabaptists. Footnote. A testimony of the ministers in the province of Essex. Also, a testimony subscribed by the ministers within the province of London against the errors, heresies, and blasphemies of these times. London. 1647 and 1648. End of footnote. The tenets of many of them were no doubt at variance with all the theologies hitherto accepted, even should we receive with abatement the Puritan description that they were, quote, the very dregs and spawn of old accursed heresies which had been already condemned, dead, buried, and rotten in their graves long ago, close quote. But they served to raise fundamental questions which had not hitherto been discussed. If they revolted the sober-minded, they were yet promulgated by enthusiasts as truths from heaven, and received by many as such. Their authors broached them expressly as new lights, new truths, and in doing so they alleged the same divine authority which the Puritans had been the first to evoke against the Church. All classes of sectaries put themselves forward with the same pertinacity as the children of the Reformation and the true interpreters of a renovated Christianity. In the face of such conflicting pretensions, it was inevitable that religious inquiry should go deeper and take a more comprehensive range than hitherto. What was the real nature of religion thus diversely represented? How was religious truth to be discriminated? And what was the use of reason in relation to it? Such were the questions more or less directly suggested by the very atmosphere of discussion in which these sects lived and which they propagated far beyond their own circle. It may seem strange that so many wild opinions should have begun to spread during the very years that the Westminster Assembly was sitting. Within the Assembly itself, it is well known there were little or no differences of doctrinal opinion. Its theology bears the special stamp of rigorous dogmatic uniformity. But the wave of religious excitement, in the flow of which Presbyterian Calvinism had triumphed and the Assembly had been convened, passed far beyond the bounds of its control. The enthusiasm which had been so powerfully called forth was not to be restrained on its spiritual any more than on its political side. In both respects it outran all calculation, and proved too strong for the authority which had enlisted it. If the Westminster divines had possessed the power, they would have put a speedy check upon the upspringing fanaticisms which grieved and alarmed them. Footnote. Abominable errors, damnable heresies, and horrid blasphemies the Puritan testimonies already quoted say, to be lamented, if it were possible, with tears of blood. End of footnote. Their wish to do so is beyond dispute. They saw nothing but the devil's handiwork in the sectarian growths which appeared profusely around them. It was as if the enemy had come by night and sown tares among the fair wheat which they had planted. But the civil power began to fail them in the very hour of their triumph and while able to carry through their dogmatic decrees with a singular unanimity, and even to obtain parliamentary sanction for them, they yet had no means of enforcing them. The decrees remained a great monument of legislative theology, but the legislature did not venture to impose them by external authority. They were left to tell by the weight of their own intrinsic credibility, and the times were too insurrectionary to defer to such an authority as this. There is even good reason to conclude that the ultra-dogmatic character of the Westminster Confession of Faith was itself among the chief reasons of the reaction to a more liberal theology. It was not merely that the theological mind, which had been so rigidly bent in one direction, had a natural tendency to swing back to a laxer curve. 
but there was evidently a strong necessity felt by some of the younger clergy trained in the traditions of the puritan school to turn men's thoughts from the polemical details which had so much engrossed them to other and as they supposed higher aspects of religious truth two things seem especially to have impressed them the need of some broader and more conciliatory principles of theology to act as solvents of the interminable disputes which raged around them and the need of bringing into more direct prominence the practical and moral side of religion these two things it will be seen became closely connected in their minds the puritan theology in the seventeenth century with all its noble attainments was both intolerant and theoretical in a high degree it would admit of no rival near its throne it was impatient of even the least variation from the language of orthodoxy it emphasized all the transcendental and divine aspects of christian truth rendering them into theories highly definite and consistent but in their very consistency disregardful of moral facts and the complexities of practical life younger theologians of a reflective turn looked on the one hand at this compact mass of doctrinal divinity measuring the whole circle of religious thought and carefully articulated in all its parts and on the other hand at the state of the religious world and the church around them the sense of schism between theory and practice between divinity and morals was painfully brought home to them it was no wonder if they began to ask themselves whether there was not a more excellent way and whether reason and morality were not essential elements of all religious dogma their minds were almost necessarily driven towards what was termed in reproach by the older puritans a kind of moral divinity footnote a phrase of Tuckney's in his second letter to Witchcote. End of footnote. Longing for peace and a higher and more beneficent action of Christian brotherhood, they naturally turned in a different direction from that which had been so little fruitful of either. They sought to soften down instead of sharpening doctrinal distinctions, to bring out points of agreement instead of points of difference in the prevailing medley of religious opinions. Especially, they tried to find a common center of thought and action in certain universal principles of religious sentiment rather than in the more abstruse conclusions of polemical theology. They became, in short, eclectics against the theological dogmatism and narrowness of their time, very much as Hales and Chillingworth became advocates of comprehension against the ecclesiastical dogmatism and narrowness of theirs. 2. But there were other, higher, and perhaps more direct causes which contributed to the rise of the Cambridge movement and imparted to it its peculiar character. It was the outcome not merely of a new growth of religious sentiment, but of a determinate series of speculative influences which distinguished the century not less than its religious agitations. It is this double feature which gives to the movement its chief significance and its best claims to historical commemoration. It not only carried forward the tide of religious liberality, but it took up and molded into a definite form of its own all the nobler intellectual tendencies of the time. Without exception, the Cambridge latitudinarian divines may be termed religious philosophers. Some deserve this epithet more conspicuously than others, but all deserve it more or less. In their writings we pass into a higher, if not more bracing, atmosphere than that in which we have been dwelling in the pages of Hales and Chillingworth. They discussed larger questions and principles of a more fundamental and far-reaching character. They sought, in a word, to marry philosophy to religion, and to confirm the union on the indestructible basis of reason and the essential elements of our higher humanity. This was their special ambition, and it was a grand ambition, whatever we may think of its success. It was the first elaborate attempt to wed Christianity and philosophy made by any Protestant school. 
and it may be even said to have been the first true attempt of the kind since the days of the great Alexandrine teachers. Footnote. The Florentine movement in the latter part of the 15th century is hardly an exception. Marcellius Ficinus and the two Pizzi of Mirandola, uncle and nephew, were not theologians, although animated by a profound theological instinct. The Academy of the Medici, of which they were the ornaments, was, in part at least, literary and humanistic in its tendencies. End of footnote. For the Christian philosophies of the Middle Ages, noble as many of them were, did not originate in a free interchange of philosophic and religious affection. Philosophy, even in the hands of so vigorous and independent a thinker as Anselm, still more in the hands of his successors, the great schoolmen of the 13th and 14th centuries, was the servitor rather than the handmaid of faith. It had no life of its own apart from the church, and therefore could not enter into any free voluntary union with it. But with the revival of a new speculative spirit in Europe in the 17th century, the question of the relations of philosophy and religion once more became a vital interest, fruitful of good or evil to human progress. It is the glory of the Cambridge divines that they welcomed this new spirit of speculation, gave it frank entertainment in their halls of learning, and, while enriching it with a culture all their own, sought to fuse it by the spontaneous action of their own thoughtfulness into a philosophy of religion at once free and conservative, in which the rights of faith and the claims of the speculative intellect should each have free scope, and blend together for mutual elevation and strength. It is not easy to trace the distinct steps by which the new speculative spirit, which marks the rise of modern philosophy in the first half of the seventeenth century, passed to Cambridge nor is it easy to determine the share which each of the great representatives of this spirit had in evoking our school of thought. The writings, both of Bacon and Descartes, exercised a definite influence in the university by the middle of the century, but we cannot clearly trace the growth of this influence, nor mark how far the one and how far the other contributed to awaken the speculative life of its teachers. As the Novum Organon had appeared as early as 1620, it might be supposed that the Baconian philosophy would have been the first to operate upon the academic mind of England and to give to it its special cast of philosophical culture. But the facts do not answer to this expectation. There are no indications that the writings of Bacon, for many years after their appearance, exercised any influence on the studies of either of the universities. On the contrary, we possess the most clear and satisfactory evidence that the old scholasticism held its ground at Cambridge for at least twenty years after the publication of the Novum Organon, as if no breath whatever of new life had stirred the speculative atmosphere. Not to speak of other sources, this is amply proved by all we know of Cambridge University studies in the interval. Jeremy Taylor, for example, was a student during the years 1626 to 33, and although imaginary pictures have been drawn of the stimulating effect of the new philosophy upon a richly susceptible mind like his, it is clear that he really knew nothing of this philosophy, as he was certainly in no degree influenced by it. In the whole cast of his thought, and his mode of treating moral and semi-speculative questions, Taylor belongs to the old medieval school. But we possess more definite evidence than this. During almost the same course of years as Taylor studied at Cambridge, there was a still greater student there, John Milton, and Milton's college exercises are preserved and have been published. They are a curious picture of the frivolities of the scholastic system and serve to show how entirely this system still dominated in the university. They discuss such questions as the music of the spheres, whether day or night is the more excellent, whether there are not partial forms in an animal in addition to the whole. 
the very statement of such questions carries the mind beyond Bacon to that study of words rather than of things against which he protested. Students of Milton will also remember the poem written by him as a vacation exercise in the nineteenth year of his age, or in the year 1627, in which ends, as father of the predicaments, along with substance, quantity, quality, and relation, his sons, is represented as speaking. It is clear that the scholastic spirit, if degenerate in strength, had yet during these years lost nothing of its hold upon the plan of Cambridge education. The academic mind remained unmoved by anything higher, and there is little doubt that the poet was thinking of his own philosophic nurture in those years, when he afterwards denounced the traditionary education as an asinine feast of sow-thistles and brambles. It was not till fully ten years later, when both Jeremy Taylor and Milton were actively engaged in the religious struggle of their age, that Bacon and Descartes began to be studied at Cambridge. The latter appears then as the more powerful influence, at least his influence can be traced more directly. Henry Moore carried on an elaborate correspondence in Latin with Descartes in the years 1648-49, to in which he expresses himself as an admiring student and implies that the Cartesian philosophy had already obtained a recognized footing in Cambridge in opposition to the expiring scholasticism. Footnote. Descartes' Discourse on Method appeared in 1637, his Meditations in 1641, and Principles of Philosophy in 1644. End of footnote. It is easy to understand Moore's enthusiasm for a philosophy which, as he says, was, quote, not only delightful to read, but especially useful in its bearing on that which is the highest end of all philosophy, namely religion. Close quote. Descartes not only furnished a new method to the awakening speculative spirit, but he addressed himself to the same great questions concerning the existence of God and the nature of spirit and matter, which formed the philosophic summit to which all the lower inquiries of the Cambridge divines led up. It was only natural, therefore, that his writings should have called forth responsive enthusiasm at Cambridge. They did not awaken the speculative spirit there. It had already begun to stir under native impulses, but they met it and so far directed it. The Cambridge teachers, most of all perhaps Henry Moore himself, were men very different from Descartes. Their mode of thought presents a striking contrast to that of the calmly skeptical, direct, and geometric French thinker. In no special sense can they be called his pupils or followers. But they move with him under the same common force. They are so far inspired by the same common aim. Both sought to ground the highest truth on a clear and immutable basis of reason. Descartes working towards this end from the philosophical, Cudworth and Moore from the theological side. The main thought of both was the same, although they approached it differently. For it is a mistake to represent Descartes as, no less than Bacon, separating philosophy from religion, and desiring to keep them asunder. He only separated the one as well as the other from tradition, in order that he might reunite them in the great center of reason, and plant them together there on a sure foundation. And this, too, was the very aim of the Cambridge Platonists. Only they contemplated the problem as Christian theologians. Descartes contemplated it as a pure thinker and speculative enthusiast. The spirit of the Baconian philosophy has much less affinity with any of the writers of the Cambridge school. For, first of all, Bacon openly proclaims a divorce betwixt philosophy and Christian theology. While the one is supposed by him to follow the light of nature, the other, he says, is grounded only upon the word and oracle of God. He shrinks, therefore, from applying any of the tests of his philosophical method to the investigation of Christian truth. 
should he step out of the bark of human reason and pass into the ship of the church it is only the divine compass which can rightly direct his course neither he adds quote, will the stars of philosophy which have hitherto conspicuously shone on us any more give their light so that on this subject it will be as well to keep silence Close quote. he speaks also timidly and vaguely although in some respects finely of the use of reason in religion it has nothing to do with the primary principles or articles of religious truth these are exempted from its examination and given upon authority not to be questioned they are not only posita but placita footnote quote, the use of human reason in religion is of two sorts the former in the conception and apprehension of the mysteries of god to us revealed the other in the inferring and deriving of doctrine and direction thereupon the former extendeth to the mysteries themselves but how by way of illustration and not by way of argument the latter consisteth indeed of probation and argument in the former we see god vouchsafeth to descend to our capacity in the expression of his mysteries in sort as may be sensible unto us and doth graft his revelations and holy doctrine upon the notions of our reason and applieth his inspirations to open our understanding as the form of the key to the ward of the lock for the latter there is allowed us a use of reason and argument secondary and respective although not original and absolute for after the articles and principles of religion are placed and exempted from examination of reason it is then permitted unto us to make derivations and inferences from and according to the analogy of them for our better direction in nature this holdeth not for both the principles are examinable by induction though not by a medium of syllogism and besides those principles or first positions have not discordance with that reason which draweth down and deduceth the inferior positions but yet it holdeth not in religion alone but in many knowledges both of greater and smaller nature namely wherein there are not only posita but placita Close quote. advancement of learning book two End of footnote it is scarcely possible to avoid the suspicion that on such subjects bacon does not speak his whole mind or at any rate that his mind was not directed to them with any clear and consistent energy we seem to catch the tone of the courtier and politician rather than of the courageous and enlightened thinker footnote the books of the de augmentis are severally dedicated ad regem suum end of footnote the cambridge platonists were not likely to borrow directly from such a scheme of thought as this nor to feel much sympathy with the spirit of baconian reserve and caution their temper and drift of mind were entirely different nor can it be said that there is any trace of the special study of bacon in their writings certainly not in the most characteristic of them yet baconianism was not without its influence upon the rising school of liberal divines as it was undoubtedly a powerful element of culture at cambridge from about the middle of the century isaac barrow who took his degree of bachelor of arts in sixteen forty eight studied bacon closely as well as descartes and john ray the celebrated naturalist was the companion of his studies these men are the direct and genuine representatives of the experimental philosophy they adopted its method and carried forward the course of scientific research which half a century later reached such grand results in the labors of sir isaac newton barrow's illustrious successor in the mathematical chair but baconianism like every other great movement of thought extended far beyond its direct followers it diffused itself as a general intellectual influence and became a part in some respects the most conspicuous part of the higher spirit of the age in which all active and forward minds shared 
there was no school of thought in the second half of the century which can be said to have been independent of it and as the most prominent opponent of the old scholastic system it was apt to receive the credit of the whole movement against it and to be taken as the type of the freer intellectual life which had everywhere begun to prevail end of chapter one part one